0: Finally getting around to posting this one. Um, this is an interview I did back in September, actually, and for some reason the format just was so different that in my head I wasn't sure I was going to make it a podcast or not. And then I got distracted with um, you know other priorities and stuff, and so just finally getting back around to this conversation I had with Gabriel it's a really interesting conversation and he's a really interesting guy so i'm really excited to be posting this finally um so gabriel reached out to me after i got uh, that essay published by the Ascension foundation um, which they titled simple code in the mind of god um i had titled it emergent idealism originally and whatever So he found my essay, thought it was interesting, reached out to me, we chatted a bit, and then he was like, oh shit, maybe I could get an essay published. Um, And, you know, had some ideas about entropy and how it related to things and ended up writing a really awesome essay um, about entropy. Um, The title is, Entropy is in the Eyes of the Beholder, um, which is, I mean, just a great title, and he, I mean, he put an incredibly impressive amount of work and and sources into, like compiled all into this um, and got it published with Essentia. It ended up being the most popular um, essay on the Essentia Foundation last year. Um, So huge props to him. That's awesome. Um, And apparently... Donald Hoffman and Kastrup and, you know, some of these essential foundation guys are expecting a book from Gabriel now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that's super awesome. Um, and yeah, Gabriel's been chatting with them and having uh, some of them on on his podcast. He's had uh, Hoffman and Kastrup so far, and he'll have Michael Levin soon, um, which I'll be discussing Michael Levin's work um, a bit coming up here as well. Super interesting stuff on um, Basically like cancer being a form of dissociation in, in the physical realm. Uh, I think that's uh, incredibly fascinating to to look at that So I shared my new Monk app with Gabriel um, He immediately I think understood um, what I was trying to do with it in terms of the whole um, you know feeding a, a metaphysical foundation to an LLM and kind of hoping that it would be able to, you know, surpass materialism by the objective um, validity of idealism, uh, which seems to be, uh, it seems to be what, I, what I've been able to confirm with this app. And it's interesting because he, he says he started playing around with it and he says that it's already been useful to him in um, kind of helping him navigate the work he's doing in getting ready to write this book and writing this book. So that's super interesting, I mean, another another potentially really powerful use case for this sort of system. Um, so definitely looking forward to working with him, collaborating with him um, on that front as well. Um, and I think that it's gonna be really interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, but anyway, this was a very sort of different format to this conversation where I almost immediately started bringing up um, some other people to come chat. So there's input from another of people. We got Tom, we got Don, um, and then more people come in at the end. Gabe actually leaves towards the end, and then we have an after discussion where we kind of go down various rabbit holes. Um, so at about one hour into the conversation, we actually start talking about Gabe's essay uh, on entropy and and related concepts, and then at about an hour and 35 minutes in, we shift to the um, afterspace where Gabriel has left, and um, it's me and Don and um, some others come up, and we're we're just chatting about um, different related ideas and kind of going down various rabbit holes. So anyway, it was a very fun conversation, different format, definitely more like an open you know twitter x space sort of thing um but good stuff and if you want to go straight to the meat of um the entropy essay uh discussion go ahead and skip to about one hour in maybe go like 55 minutes in or so um but anyway it's a good one and i think
1: you'll enjoy it what's up how's it going How doing? good good man um So is this your first Twitter space then? It is. I rarely get on Twitter. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe this will inspire you to get on a little more. I I think the, the spaces are a really great format um, for discussions and getting interesting people in here. So yeah, I scheduled it for 10. Yeah. Hopefully we'll start getting some other people in here pretty soon. I know a couple of people were interested. Um, So you never know. It could be like five. It could be like 30. just depends on who comes in and who follows them in, basically. Um, But anyway, so you got your, are you on your phone? Yeah, my phone. Cool. Yeah, so you just got the mute button on the bottom left. Um, I don't know if you'll have background noise, but I tried to stay. There's Tom. Yeah, I know Tom wanted to talk to you about or ask you about like Mormonism in particular, because he also is like, I. my understanding is that you're both like ex Mormon. So definitely bring him up here to, to chat with you at some point. Um, and then the other thing is like the little heart plus sign down at the bottom. That's nice. Cause you mm-hmm. can give reactions like real time while someone's talking, you can be like, Oh yeah. Thumbs up. Like I agree. Or like uh, raise your hand if you're like, okay, I want to talk soon sort of thing. So anyway, those things are all like really helpful. And, um, honestly, I, I think Twitter spaces is, is in a lot of ways better than a video chat because, um, it's just very focused on the audio and then the emotes actually really do facilitate the conversation, uh, in a pretty powerful way. So That's I was cool. kind of surprised. What's that?
2: We've been doing our podcasts with video, um, and it's getting smoother but uh, yeah, that takes a little bit more, frees up a little more. It's taking me more to get used to being on the camera as well as talking, but it's going smoother as you go. You've been doing your podcast for how long?
1: You asked for how long? Yeah. Um, started at the beginning of the year pretty much. So yeah, I guess, what's that, eight months now? Almost nine um all right well let's go ahead and get started here um i think maybe let's maybe let's start the conversation with just like your theological journey slash background if you don't mind uh, especially since tom's in here and i know he'd be interested in that so just kind of like you know how how you were uh kind of the theological environment you were raised in and then like how you sort of transitioned to where you are now, just some of the key milestones there I think would be a great place
2: to start. Sure. Yeah. Feel free to interrupt me too. Cause I'll try to condense the story. Um, I was raised Mormon and just was pretty much all in on Mormonism. I was a very black and white thinker. And so, like I was the one that was, you know, searching the church's website for like specific rules that you could and couldn't do in dating, and you know, very, like, very left-brained, which makes Mormonism very difficult. But in the end, you know, is thankfully what helped me reassess things because I've got friends that are much more comfortable with the nuance and uh, I think there's benefits to that being you know you're, you're able to be more mentally well I think in a high demand religion um, but then the downsides of that is that uh, you're kind of a, a green branch where you you know the, the cognitive dissonance doesn't really push you to uh, reevaluate things. So, anyway, I uh, raised Mormon, um, went on a Mormon mission to Montana, Wyoming, uh, went to BYU, and um, got very left brain stuff, studied bioinformatics, computer science, and then went to dental school, and got married, and was you know, I would have doubts uh, about, I kept my brain fairly bifurcated in that, you know, most of it was very logical, left brain, sciency, y um, materialist, but also hoped or like had this Mormon part of me, but the, the two didn't meet very often, although Mormonism is more logical, I think, than a lot of Christian religions that, you know, the Things make a bit more sense, and that they've got some um, explanations for people that maybe never heard of Christ or whatnot. So it it's I think more amenable to logic than uh, other Christian faiths. And so uh, I was about well, I guess I would always see you know I'd see friends leaving Mormonism, and was always pretty sad. And I think some of that was because I knew that I had doubts, but I didn't know if I'd ever be able to like really, um, let go of the answer that I wanted to get and really look at things objectively. So about seven years ago, we, um, it was before the birth of my first kid, And Mormonism was always difficult, like in a difficult point in my marriage because I was very strict, black and white. Um, And my ex wife was more nuanced. And so that was kind of a uh, a conflict. And so eventually I was like, you know, I'm going to. I had a friend that had left Mormonism and he didn't follow the typical um, leaving and becoming very bitter and angry. And I couldn't. I couldn't do the typical justification of like, oh, he left because he wanted to sin or because he got offended or whatnot. And so just reevaluated things. Um, I knew most of the arguments against Mormonism, like the historical things. And so I read like the CES letter is this pretty famous uh, um, attack on Mormonism or on certain truth claims. Um, but it doesn't really have like a, very coherent narrative, I think, to me. It's basically like everything's made up, everything's a fraud, um, sort, of spaghetti, uh, sort of spaghetti at the wall approach. I mean, it's got decent points. So I read that, and then I read kind of the, the church's response to it, and I was like, eh, this doesn't... Uh, not the church's, but the apologist's response. And so it just didn't add up to me, truth-claim-wise. And so... I was like, I didn't come to a specific conclusion of what happened, but I left and then was just, you know, the one good thing about Mormonism, one of the good things about Mormonism is that it, uh, you know that none of the other churches are true. Like that's how you are. That's how I felt when I left Mormonism. I was like, well, I don't have to check anything else out. Um, And I thought that there was no way to actually figure out truth and, and I was like, well, you know, if there was some truth that we could figure out about kind of metaphysical, philosophical principles, like there'd be a consensus. And so it was about five, six years of that. And then and I didn't really want to think about death or think about the questions that I couldn't answer. Um, but along the way, I, I would have looking back, I could see these like intuitive insights of you know, one point I was like, well, maybe we're all like, maybe we're all like leaves on a tree and like we will fall off, but like the tree keeps living. Um, or I was like, you know, thinking about death and decomposition and how our atoms go back into the world and that becomes other life forms and, and people and plants. And so I had these kind of models um, running through my head or, or thinking like, oh, you know, we I guess we do continue to exist in the mental models that others make of us or uh, in, in our kids. And so uh, but then I went through some huge life shifts sort about two years ago, uh, separated, started uh, a divorce and we were full time RVing at the time, taking a bit of sabbatical after Second kid was born, so I, like moved cross country. Um, was shifting, you know, as we separated, started, uh, I shifted from public health dentistry to private dentistry, which I had some, you know, anxiety about because I'd been in public health for a while. Um, was trying to process like what went on in relationship, and so just took a deep dive in psychology and attachment science, and um, nonviolent communication which was really paradigm shifting and so yeah so is it just like diving deep into my childhood and understanding what made me me and um, and there's a lot of shame rooted in like the core beliefs that I had and so I just um, went through a pretty profound experience so There is one of our podcast episodes. I co-host a podcast, Mormons, Mystics, and Muons. Um, Episode six of it, we review this uh, scientific journal article that talks about this fairly well-studied or decently studied concept of a spontaneous spiritual awakening or a kundalini awakening. The author of it had one. She was an atheist, woke up into like a mystical state um, and had no clue really what was going on. She changed her career path and studied it. So it was a very good journal article that discusses it. And, but that's what I, what I went through, um, just having really profound endogenous experiences, um, mystical-type experiences, uh, as, I, as I was learning about listen to a lot of alan watts and just these paradigm shifting ideas of us all being one interconnected you know for me the models of like dissociative identity disorder actually um, was a pretty crucial part of me understanding this concept of how one mind can be different parts that are dissociated from itself also the concept of dreaming and lucid dreaming because i was doing or trying to do some lucid dreaming and um so a lot of these things just coalesced into a um idealism and it was this fascinating journey of like putting things almost having thoughts crystallized um and then finding an article or listen to a podcast or Uh, reading a book or something that was just one step ahead of, you know, right where I was getting. And so a very um, synchronistic path for uh, last year and a half. And so some, you know, some kind of peak experiences to demystify, you know, people talk about mystical experiences, um, but they don't really talk much about what happens. So I had some moments. It was right after I started uh, learning about Hinduism and just really cementing this idea of like, oh, we're all connected. We're all one. Um, Some experiences, not like meditating, not with eyes closed, but like in really connecting with another person um, and feeling this really profound love. This is a coworker uh, just talking and you know, just having this experience of everything, it was like sh- shifting from 720p resolution to like 8k resolution and like 256 colors to you know millions of colors. Um, an actual visual experience, I don't see anything that wasn't there, no uh non human intelligence or anything. Um, but a few moments like that over this period that were d- really just mind bending to me. Um, and luckily, I had a, a friend at the time who had left Mormonism and had uh, gotten into also a computer science guy got into some energy work. He went to Sedona and uh, did some energy. Went through the school there, um, and then had also explored in psychedelics. And so, I as I was processing things with him, um, he was like, "Oh, you need to look up." You know Kundalini awakening and I had no clue what it was and yeah you, know, you know Googled it and all the things checked out um, so he, he was very much kind of this facilitator through this process and um, helping me um, process things and kind of get my bearings because uh, it's very it's very ungrounding um, and so awesome yeah yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for that, sharing, man. What's yeah, that? that process through that process? Uh, I kept having these insights of like, oh, this explains Mormonism so much and, and just seeing like the mystical um, origins of Mormonism. Yeah. Well, that's really
1: interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff there. I definitely want to get into while we have Tom up here, I would I do want to invite him to ask questions about um, anything about like your transition from Mormonism I, or I, I would also just like to hear like a little bit about how you might or might not relate uh, Tom to to Gabe's uh, story there. Um, and then also, I'm curious to ask divine is, is the Kundalini awakening the thing that you talk about sometimes? So maybe if it is, maybe you could come up at some point, but uh, anyway, Tom, if you want to chime in here, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit from you.
3: Sure. Thanks. Uh, Hey, Gabriel, thanks for sharing your story. And uh, so I, I'm in my thirties. I'm only been post-Mormon for about, uh two years it happened during covid and served a mission and i what stuck out to me and what you said is it sounds like you're still are you still doing like a spiritual walk are you still trying to figure out the spiritual side of things or do you feel like you have it stabilized
2: i mean for me um so i was always very very much scientific and Materialist, very skeptical of anything like woo. Then I, with these mystical experiences, like there's like no way to to explain this precognitive, even some like weird kind of psychic things go on. And so that put me in this like crisis of like, how do I blend these two worlds together? And so, like, the spiritual and the scientific then um, merged once I put together idealism and you know, the, a, a mental model. And so for me, I feel like it's very, very well figured out. And it's, it's a integration of a lot of different, um, yeah, viewing everything kind of like you commented. Uh, I see the meaning and see where all the different religions overlap. Um, and definitely ones that have more better models.
3: So so it sounds like you need. Forgive me if I if I'm putting words in your mouth, here, but it sounds like you still kind of need. Because okay, when I was Mormon, ah, it was everything, and I I wasn't even raised in it. Uh, my family was divorced, and uh, lots of drug addictions, and I th- I think that's the whole reason the Mormon Church got them is because what, what better religion than one where you can't drink alcohol sure. and, and such? So um but they they still had their problems so like i went to church just on my own without my family and doing that on my own it really made spirituality and everything that mormonism was about like number 1 in my reality and my existence and since leaving i would say for me it's like it's like the lowest priority in terms of like needing stability and and living would you say you still need, like, a spiritual quest, perspective? Uh, like, is that your meaning? Like, uh, is it up there? Because for me, it's, like, the bottom of the list.
2: Yeah, it's funny because, of like, it, it was, like, yeah, at the top. And I would put, like, God and, and church and, you know, above everything, above family. You know, that caused a lot of the, these conflicts of, you know, we got to wear our garments right in this. And then, like, I left and... The spirituality like was bottom of the list, um, and it wasn't actually until I just was going through this crisis, and I was like, well, I'm gonna start listening to Sam Harris, and I guess I'm gonna be a an atheist, because um, I, I guess agnostic. Um, and then it was like in starting to meditate in the middle of this awakening, I was like, oh my gosh, I like that. I do believe in God. It's just like the universe is not a a, a, a dude in the sky, and then like it. Yeah, so I mean, spirituality is everything to me, but it, but it's also like science involved and it brings a, I mean, it's opened up a whole new world and meaning in life um, in, in such a better way than, than I had ever experienced before. Um, so that, cause it's, it's an interesting experience to be free of like cognitive dissonance um, that you had to, you had to have a shelf in Mormonism and there's a point where I think you get to where it's like, you don't have a shelf anymore. And just more things keep falling into place scientifically and spiritually.
3: I I had my shelf too. And um, definitely cognitive dissonance. The thing that I the greatest thing that I've gotten from it, and I think this is just with cults in general, is I just feel free, like I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to read anything. Like the whole entire, like as Mormons, you're afraid to read opinions of people that aren't Mormon, and that's just wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, I think for me, I know um,
2: River talks about nihilism a lot, and I'm not a huge like uh, philosophical buff, but. There, there was a point in this where you're, like, deconstructing everything and, like, you do get to the point of nihilism where, you're like, oh, nothing, nothing has meaning. And that's super scary. Um, but then I think beyond nihilism, like, when you've given up and surrendered to, like, everything being meaningless, then you have this freedom of, like, oh, if there's, like no inherent meaning you can just make whatever meaning you want. Um, and if, you know, from idealism, from monism, you know, if there's no outside source from which to give you like commandments or rules or, or meaning, um, and we're all part of this bigger one, then, you know, I think you just look into your life of like, what's given me the most meaning it's love and it's connection, Um, with people with nature and yeah so so yeah i think there's a lot of freedom um, but i think it's beyond nihilism like that's my perspective it's very scary you have to go the death of meaning um for me
1: yeah yeah i mean i think we're getting into some really interesting territory here um, and it definitely like highlights the difference in in like your path and mine because I'm coming from, you know, a very sort of atheist progressive sort of family. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's still similarities to where kind of I I went through nihilism because of that, and then um, kind of had my awakening. I don't, I guess maybe it would be classified in that way. I I will openly say a lot of mushrooms were involved for me personally Um, but it was also a very long process and it wasn't exclusively just that one uh, experience by any means Um, but I guess what I'm sort of most interested to ask when we start talking about nihilism is where are you at in your journey in terms of like what has this sort of awakening actually awoken in you in terms of wanting to, I mean, I know you've started this podcast and stuff um, and you recently wrote that essay, which we'll talk about, um, got that published and stuff. And, you know, I've been doing similar things. (laughs) I have a podcast and I have an essay published by the same foundation, as you know. Um, I guess my question is like, what is it, if anything, that you feel, um I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but like do you feel a pull to now share what you've learned in some way? And if so, with who? How do you determine, you know, who's ready to learn that? Or I think I think you can see where I'm going with those mm-hmm. sorts of questions.
2: Yeah, I think um there's an Alan Watts lecture where he talks about like when you have a mystical experience like the first thing you do is you want to like beat everybody over the head with it you're like share with everybody and so there's definitely that part of the journey that i went through where you kind of feel like it's your responsibility or that like if everybody could just uh um know what you know or experience what you experience like it would just click uh for them And then you realize really quickly that that's not the case at all. And, you know, for me, it was through very, very difficult, like it's through an ego death that you get there. And then I realized that you can't, you can't give, you know, I view it as like a chemical reaction where you can't put any energy into somebody else's. System, you know, they 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 have to supply that themselves, um, and often that's supplied through like hitting rock bottom, through health stuff, through divorce, whatnot. Um, but you can catalyze things, um, you can catalyze the energy that they have and make it more effective. Um, and I think, particularly in like leaving Mormonism, there's so much such an exothermic reaction because like this their whole life and meaning like everything is built upon this Um, and then it all comes tumbling down and um, there's just this huge release of energy and there's this pivotal moment where people are questioning everything Um, and it's it's a moment that people can make a lot of growth but there's not really much resources out there to recontextualize Mormonism uh, because most people that leave, you know, they, they do swing to this atheist, you know, often kind of bitter, angry. And, and, you know, I think anger is an important part of the the process, the grieving process. Um, But most of the material out there is like, Oh, it's just a, um, everything is made up. It's a fraud. Like the, Vision, all these experiences were made up, which I think is—you um, have to build another shelf to believe all all of that because um, it's really hard to get a lot of people to, um, I guess, stick by the same story. And so much stuff lines up with mysticism. So, so for me, for me, it took a, it was very difficult piecing all the puzzles, uh, uh, putting all the puzzle pieces together. Um, but it really comes together in a much more clear picture, um, much more plausible narrative, but you have to be open to idealism. So so that's kind of my, I mean, I see there's a lot of like existential crisis and a lot of pain that people go through coming out of Mormonism. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people just get stuck in, um, stuck in anger or stuck in bitterness or stuck in a very materialist mindset. Um, and like sapiens becomes the, their, their new Bible. Um, and then they kind of just argue back and forth between atheism and theism, which is a kind of a pointless argument in my opinion. Um, and so so that's my, I guess what I'm drawn to is that there are, it wasn't really much, there wasn't really a good narrative out there tying together, um, mysticism and idealism and scientific, you know, Jungian, um, psychology and philosophy to have a, a good explanation for where the book of Mormon came from. Um, what really happened with Joseph Smith, and you know there there is some work coming, you know, being done on you know psychedelic origins of Mormonism, which is really influential in my uh, meaning making, but it's um, but it's still not very, it doesn't address like what's the philosophical significance of it. That. So that's kind of what I'm so what do what you say would you say that you're
1: like trying to reinterpret Mormonism to some degree, or would you say you're more um, kind of bridging the gap to like help others who are becoming disillusioned, kind of more smoothly transition toward idealism? Or are you not saying either of those
2: things? Um, I don't think it's a reinterpretation of Mormonism. I think it's a, a recontextualization of Mormonism because so many of the things that seem unique to Mormonism um, actually are just very esoteric, you know, very common in esotericism, um, and like even the, the the way in which the Book of Mormon was produced, um, it's very similar to all these other channeled works or automatic writing, you know, Joseph Smith's mystical experiences. So all these things line up um, in a bigger picture, but you, you have to be aware of these things, and coming out of Mormonism, you have You know, this huge blind spot about altered states of consciousness because you don't even drink in Mormonism. And so you're not equipped at all to come to any meta narrative um, because you just never looked into any of this stuff. And so it's giving, it's a a narrative that makes a lot of sense to me and a lot of people that have read it. I don't know that it's, you know, there's still things to be pieced together. but it's putting a narrative out there that I think makes more sense and then people can uh, take what seems um, accurate to them and uh, kind of do their own searching.
1: Cool. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I'll let Tom chime in here.
3: Uh, so, Gabriel, I love that you mentioned sapiens. I that It's not my Bible, but when I'm really pondering just existence, I have it on an Audible book and I'll... I'll re-listen to it to like get back to the basics i appreciate you bringing that up um Fallon, you talked about like nihilism a little bit ago and i've been struggling with nihilism existential crisis and what's helped me deal with that is just trying to keep the foundation to my life as simple as possible and mormonism offers that basically oh you could become like God and the family you have in this life will you'll have in heaven and everything's building towards the family I've kind of reversed that in the sense of there's nothing spiritual about family anymore but family is where we all come from so like my first principle is like having a deep relationship with someone you can start a family with because we're, we're all here I love this Jordan Peterson quote of uh we're all here because all of our ancestors successfully reproduced so i think i think there's something very to the core of can you find someone to have a deep relationship with for your entire life because the modern world it's very easy to keep finding new people to hook up with and start and stop relationships so but yeah it's just family building a home and like going deep into my craft i'm a, i'm a computer programmer those seem to make work for me. I don't know if I'm too simple, but all of the philosophy and and I, I and any type of religious or spirituality, I, I take it as it's just like fiction. It's it's that I'm that I'm nerding out on. It's it's just something fun that's icing on the cake. That that it's tools to help us navigate existing. Because I feel well, one thing I've noticed. Oh, let me say just one thing. One thing that kind of bugs me, there's a lot of uh, a non-Twitter, they really like to go into deep philosophy and history, and to Gabriel, to use the term for you, is like these people who really nerd out in philosophy, those philosophers have become their new prophets, and mm-hmm. it's their new scripture, and they're just obsessed over this this entanglement that I think men are more obsessed over than, than women. So it, it just seems well, like it never, it's a never-ending rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that was actually a a great segue sort of into talking about idealism, um, because for me, idealism is exactly um, the answer to nihilism, because at least personally, my my nihilism was very much rooted in materialism. And what idea what analytic idealism in particular shows us is that the science does not at all point to materialism. It, it points to idealism. Um, like, it, you know, if you, if you take Occam's razor seriously that the, the model with fewer assumptions is a better model. Well, I mean, when you're talking about metaphysical assumptions and the difference between one assumption and two assumptions, that's, these are all like really profound things. So for like a super hyper, hyper logical, like science, quote unquote, scientifically minded sort of person, um, which I have been for for a long time, um, idealism gave me exactly the answers I needed to overcome nihilism, because um, basically idealism frames things such that we all as humans are. a a small part of this one greater, like God mind, so to speak. And when you look at the science and see that all the scientific evidence is reaffirming that, then the nihilism just kind of disappears. I mean, you, you might get little hints of it here and there, but um, like if you, if you recognize that like the transcendent lives through us as us, right. You're literally part of this God mind and you recognize how much power you have in your life and also um, just framing it that way does other super powerful things such as showing pretty much inarguably that like suffering itself and and all forms of suffering are inherently meaningful um, basically because everything is like all these things um, to me just almost completely erase nihilism so like, I think it's, it's really powerful if in the nihilistic age we live in to be able to share that with people and help people see that, that, that is the case. That is what the evidence is pointing us to. Um, and it does very powerfully, um, combat and overcome nihilism and, and materialism as a whole, um, and so to get back to like what I was starting to talk about with Gabe here on like, what should we be doing? Uh, I think, you know, just making it more accessible to people to where, uh, you know, I think, I feel like for the two of us, you, you kind of had to dig through a bunch of crap to finally find it. And then it's like, Oh, this cast guy. And like, Oh, like there's this guy here and there. And it's like after hours and hours of going through all this stuff, but it's like, this is not um, well established in common discourse by any means. So I think just, you know, being another voice that talks about it and in, in your community, trying to put out material online and, and make it as accessible as possible. Like, I think all those things are really, uh, really good and powerful and, and helpful. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tom.
3: Do You think you can start like a cult or a community with idealism?
1: I mean, of course you could, but the, the thing about idealism is it sort of transcends any one cult, right? So like it, it like which in a, in some ways makes it weaker, um, but in some ways obviously also makes it stronger because it's sort of like a, a meta religion sort of thing where um, y- you're like recognizing paradoxes and recognizing that they are paradoxes and accepting them and and then like anytime you commit to specific beliefs or or specific things you can also see like oh well uh you you can sort of see through them from, from through from the idealistic lens right like If if we're all part of this God mind, then that means everything that's happening right now is, in a sense, like necessary and like divinely valid, you might say. And so all the messiness and all the bad stuff is like somehow part of this greater necessary process, in a sense. Um, And so, like, if you, you know, if you were to start a cult, maybe maybe you should uh maybe that that would be a great way to you know build a family that and that could work
2: out great. Um but well, I think I think where people get in trouble, which I think there is um I mean you are on this like knife edge when you start having uh mystical experiences uh seeing a lot of synchronicities because it is this metaphysical you're dealing with like metaphysical things. And they, you know, if you research mystical experiences, if you research psychedelic experiences, they use, it's an experience that uses the constructs that you believe in. Um, And so depending on how much you've unlearned uh, that, that serves as the limit for what you you can learn. And so I used to think that anybody that had, you know, a mystical experience, like, oh, they just get it. They get that everything is one. And this whole pointless act, not pointless, um, you know, this destructive act of good and evil, this idea of good and evil. And like, we need to vanquish sin and vanquish Satan. And you realize like, you know, Satan's inside you, God's inside you, like, Christ fasting for forty days, Um, you know his when Satan tempted him that was inside of himself, you know tempting him. Hey, turn this these stones into bread. Like, who who would tempt you to do that? I mean, that's your own desire, or you know, throw yourself off this and and save yourself. Um, So I think that I've seen a lot of people that have had mystical experiences, especially if they're occasioned through religion. Um, through fasting, uh, through, you know, really intense contemplative prayer. You know, these are ways that endogenous mystical experiences can be uh, occasioned, but they come with a big risk that the people that have those often feel it's because they are more righteous or that they've done something, you know, to please God, and you know the the shame and the guilt that's kind of programmed into Judeo-Christian culture, where we think that we're fallen man. Um, often that makes us can make you double down in into this, like oh, we need to vanquish evil, and like I'm on the good side. Um, and you also have this, you just experience something bizarre and wild that you've never experienced before, and if you tell people about it. They'll often tell you that you're crazy. And so you have this kind of fork in the road where you either double down on your experience and can get a little more, you know, can go towards narcissistic tendencies or you feel you're crazy. And so I think there is um, a real risk in some of these things if you don't have, like, the container, if you don't have the philosophical the scientific uh underpinnings to it and you see that with you know i don't know if you followed lori Vallow and chad daybell you know there was a lot of new age mysticism uh bizarre experiences that they had and they interpreted it through the lens of religion um i had a a, a guy in my mission who ended up forming a cult and is now in jail um and that's a bizarre story too so Uh, I think idealism and being able to contextualize it outside of this kind of false dichotomy of good and evil, heaven and hell um, is really helpful.
4: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I think an interesting question when we start talking about like these mystical experiences and like, when you have one of these, you just sort of know, right, you know, that we're your part of this greater whole. And I mean, for me, I, I always, well, repeatedly, uh, was able to get into the state of feeling like one with everything and at peace with everything. Um, so kind of a stereotypical psychedelic experience, I guess you might say, um, I've had that many times, uh, you know, both with and without that the psychedelic catalyst so to speak um i think it's interesting to like kind of recognize the power of that experience right it's just like you know right you experienced it and and also recognize just how utterly futile it is to try to rationally explain that to somebody as if they can, they can understand it without actually having the experience. Um, so there's that, but then like, where, I guess, like, where does that leave us in terms of how might we go about, you know, helping facilitate other others journeys in whatever way we can i mean we've already talked about just like just talking about these things and getting getting the ideas of idealism out there and more accessible all that is like obviously good um but in terms of like if we're you know if if someone in our community is like struggling with nihilism is it really going to are there hard limits on what we can do by explaining like logically that there is uh, I guess just that like idealism actually makes more sense based on the scientific evidence than than materialism does. Is there a hard limit on how far someone can go with that? Do they need to have that um, transcendent experience? Um, And then I guess on the other side, it's like, I think it's worth noting that while you can have this experience where you just sort of know that's true um, for me, I wasn't really able to bring that back and un- fully and, and like keep it and hold on to it until I had gone through the whole process of like logically integrating idealism into my greater worldview, because now that I have that, anytime I start to feel like anxiety or depression, whatever, like I, anytime I might start slipping towards nihilism. Um, and it's not like, it's not like a scary slippage, but, um, I can immediately like sort of summon that rational argument and be like, okay, this is why this is happening, but I will get through this and all that. And, and, and I can feel really confident in that. Whereas before I had the idealism framework, you know, I would, I would be able to remember having those experiences where I was like, feeling connected to a transcendent greater oneness. But it felt like, you know, there were times where it felt like, you know, it was just because I had eaten a mushroom or whatever, you know, and it's like, was that just an illusion, things like that, that are like, very deeply, uh, kind of nihilistic ideas in themselves. So, um, Yeah, I guess I'm just curious, any thoughts you have on on that rant, Gabe? And then we can go to Tom again.
2: Yeah, I think for me, it was interesting because fortunately and unfortunately, I didn't have any substance to blame, which was what made it really bizarre. um, Because, I mean, it's it's really inexplicable. It's like an experience that you've never um, had before. And, and that's why it's so hard to like tell somebody because if they've never tasted salt, you can't describe salt to them. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's it's difficult um, to initiate somebody into this idea because reality seems so real the way we've interpreted it. And materialism is a pretty good framework. I mean, it's really useful. Uh, so that's what I kind of like focusing on Mormonism is because it's this actually, this beautiful case study of, of all these concepts. Uh, I mean, you have a channeled book, you have the book of Mormon, which I mean, it is a pretty amazing book. I couldn't write something like that myself. Um, It also doesn't add up to a historical account, but all the other explanations for it, it's pretty difficult to, um, Really be on board with those, but if you, actually, if you learn anything about channeled um, works and you realize, like, oh, this is actually nothing that surprising at all. Uh, and then they've got all these, you know, passages in the Mormon scriptures that, like, they're describing mystical experiences. And once you know, like, the, the key definitions for a mystical experience on, like, the, the Hood's mysticism scale, you realize it'd actually be really difficult to fake this and, like, check all these boxes if you weren't actually having this because they didn't have, you know, these scales or, or easy access to this. Um, so Mormonism, and then people have a lot of spiritual experiences with Mormonism um, that, you know, it's just, it would be crazy for them to deny that. And so I think Mormonism is what I like to focus on because, um, because these people already have, like, a... A perfect example that supports a lot of these ideas, um, but the approach that I try to do, you know, I have a I have the podcast, and it started with a Substack where I just kind of initiated. I mean, it's a long post, but I initiated somebody into like the ideas of idealism versus materialism, into um, Jungian psychology, and into quantum physics, into all these different angles that uh, a little bit of a shotgun approach to like you know you don't need to understand any of these like in depth but you just need to see that they're all pointing to an underlying truth and then this is how uh it makes sense uh this is how mormonism makes sense within this context so it's for me i think it's helpful um people coming out of mormonism because it is such a mystical uh, it started very mystical and it's definitely become corporate. Um, but yeah, it's hard for somebody to flip their whole worldview when what they have is working fairly well for them.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's go to Tom for a minute here and then let's get into the actual entropy topic.
3: I'm getting the impression from you, Fallon and Gabe that uh, you're, mystical experiences you've had whether with substances or without have a lot of weight in not a lot of weight they you both feel like you're connected to something and i just wanted to share um i didn't do any substances till i was like 34 35 i was super strict with mormonism uh and then once i was out i i drank a lot of alcohol and and gummies and um I felt the spirit air quotes like really strong on gummies. Like here I am sinning as a Mormon, but I've never felt the spirit as strong as I, as I did then. So I, but I I look at my experience as like, Oh, you just consumed something that allowed you to use different parts of your brain and enhanced what has already been there since you've been sober your whole life. Of course you're experiencing this. So, I, for me, I don't really. I just think of it as like it's my own thing. Uh, it's 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 an experience that helps me connect with people. But I'm I'm not. I don't look at it as I'm a part of something, per se. So do you? So do just to simplify the question, do you, it sounds like both of you feel like when you have mystical experiences, whether on or off substances, you 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 do like you literally feel like there is something out there that you're a part of, some creator, or yeah, so there's a uh, so
2: the the term mystical experience, even though it sounds wishy washy, um it's a pretty well defined term. And when John Hopkins, uh, when Roland Griffiths restarted psychedelic research at John Hopkins, you know a few years back, they were really surprised to see that the these people that they gave you know, high doses of psilocybin to, uh, these were religious people, um in their their first studies. They were really surprised that these people had an experience that exactly matched um, the the experiences recorded by all these religious mystics, um, and so, and if you if you look at the, the research on this, you know, people, um, the the, the Good Friday experiment, uh, experiment or something, they had these. Um, theology students take psilocybin and, and listen to a sermon and even on like a 20-year follow-up nine out of ten of them said it was you know one of the most spiritual experiences in their life and so one of the attributes of the mystical experience as they define it is this ineffability um that it's just uh, or it's a yeah, that's one of the attributes, but this noetic sense that like there's something that you you know you don't believe, but like you know you can't describe how you know it, but it, like it's it's a knowledge now. Um, cannabis is somewhat psychedelic, but it's not it, it wouldn't reliably have that effect. Um, and alcohol wouldn't either. So, I mean, you can have some somewhat like mystical or uh, spiritual experiences, I think with some of those substances, but there are certain true psychedelic substances that, that it can happen very reliably with um, following certain protocols in these studies. So yeah, it is something that um, is a, is a key definition of like uh, the mystical experience. Yeah. I,
1: I would say like, cannabis could work I would you know it's psychedelic enough it it definitely could I, I don't think alcohol really could I mean I guess you could happen to be using it while you have one for like almost completely unrelated reasons but but I do think it's really like worthwhile to just recognize that you know, with, with the materialism being the default framing. And when you take these substances and you think, Oh, it's this chemical entering me, like having this effect on me, then it makes it almost impossible for you to integrate some sort of transcendent experience as something uh, more profound than, than merely some sort of illusion. So again, like I think if, You know, if people just understand that idealism is actually like more supported by the science and that's just kind of more well known, then then there'd be more prepared to integrate such experiences as, you know, being real and being profound uh, in, in a powerful sort of way. Um, Okay, so I see Don's requesting. Happy to bring you up here, Don. Uh, We are going to get into the topic of entropy here as well. So uh, I imagine you'd be interested in that, hopefully. Um, So I'll go ahead and ask, Gabe, why did you choose to focus on entropy for your essay? And maybe just kind of give us a brief summary of your essay and kind of how entropy and idealism are related
2: um entropy was as i was like processing all these things a year year and a half ago um entropy was just something that like popped up in my mind and i I was i guess you'd call it a download or something like trying to figure it out um of like why why things were heading towards more order. And I was thinking of time as a construct and the block universe and all this stuff. Um, and then I kind of put it on the shelf until, um, just last couple months, I was thinking more about it and just was listening to a few different podcasts or watching videos on entropy and then saw kind of the same thing being said by different, um, Scientists on it. And so that's, and then I, I think I'm, I'm more integration is what I like to do and, and taking different um, perspectives and putting them together. And so, um, yeah, ent- entropy and idealism. So the, the paper that I wrote um, is essentially reframing entropy. Or, or the second law of thermodynamics, which states that um, entropy always increases in a closed system. As uh, instead, entropy being a an artifact of a conscious uh, observer's perspective, and that um, and this, a lot of this goes into Wolfram Alfred's or Wolfram's. Um, work on computational irreducibility um, but essentially you know we are only perceiving you know some percentage some limited abil- uh, amount of an infinitely complex reality and if you consider that's happening moment after moment after moment um, we're just serially downsampling reality and so if you look at these Um, you know, the simple models of all the gas molecules are one side of the container and the vacuum on the other, you go from essentially, you just lose track of the information um, rather than entropy being an inherent trait of physical systems or objective systems, which really has to be the case from an idealistic perspective because there is no objective reality outside of us as observers like we are all part of the same intersubjective reality so there actually is no way for like the second law of thermodynamics to stand as it's interpreted now within idealism
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting to reframe it that way because, you know, how we normally think of entropy uh, in kind of the the standard uh, mainstream like scientific um, thermodynamic sort of Framing is basically, and, and like this gets into the whole EAC movement with people like Beth always talking about how our goal as hum, hum, like humans is to increase entropy as much as possible or whatever. But I think, you know, it's interesting to just recognize that no matter what your metaphysical framing, you know, if you assume that you as a conscious being exist within a comp Complex reality that you can only ever create a model of right then there is always a limit on how much you can understand and how um, predictive your model can be so no matter how much you improve your model it'll always seem like there's this thing we call entropy it'll always seem like we're creating more and more unpredictability but in a sense we're really just like we can flip that and instead recognize the constant that there's just like always this balance between order and chaos. And so, you know, when we build more and more complex models, it seems like we're also creating more entropy, but in a sense that like that's really just kind of keeping the balance. um, You might say, Um, I, I guess I'm curious to ask if you have thoughts on that. Or, like, to what degree is that overlapping with kind of the main point you're making?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I hesitate a little bit to say that there's always a balance between order and chaos because there, it's not a linear progression necessarily. I mean, there's always a balance um, in maybe like the ruliad or, or all uh, possible perspectives of reality, but our perspective um you know with our ego being an an illusion really our conscious experience is just a a window into reality our way of looking at reality so um so it's sort of this i don't know if you've listened to much terence mckenna but interestingly enough like i my paper really I think he's talking about the same thing that he's talking about when he when he talks about this novelty uh theory or this time wave theory and he and i haven't listened to a lot of his stuff but he talks about this kind of this going back and forth between like order and chaos and complexity and novelty and i think that's there is this kind of seesawing back and forth where um you know if we if we look at our life we, we go through these intense difficulties and trials um, that we can't quite make sense of. And then to make sense of them, in my case, you know, I learned about psychology and I learned about attachment and trauma and Jungian psychology. And then I look back and like, everything makes sense. Like it's all ordered. Like I've ordered the chaos. And so I think it is this like back and forth where, um, we bring in more chaos and then we order it and then we bring in more chaos and then we order it. And interestingly enough, since time is, is, is a manifestation of entropy. I mean, they're intricately linked. um, In some sense, when we order the chaos, when we achieve higher states of consciousness and are able to see, I mean, you know, one of the things people talk about in psychedelics is that they see these fractals, they see these patterns that are always there in nature, but, you know, suddenly you can see it. Um, the, and I think that speaks to this uh, correlation between lower entropy and higher states of consciousness. So, so as we achieve higher states of consciousness individually and collectively, um, the entropy kind of knock the entropy back down. And in some ways, time goes backwards, um, and I think I think there's some subjective feeling of that. You know, as we go through things like COVID, where um, time just seems to be running differently. And this is the, this is the weird stuff Terrence McKenna used to talk about, um, but yeah, it's, there's some interesting uh, interplays here with time being a construct.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like. I always like to, you know, from the idealist framing of just assuming basically we're within this kind of mind, like all reality is within a mind, then the adaptive nature of consciousness, such as like more trivial forms of it, like just hedonic adaptation, for example, if you extrapolate out and recognize how adaptive, like the nature of so many things are, um, then to me, like all this stuff kind of comes together. And so I often do frame it as balance between order and chaos, because I recognize that as we order things, as we, and I also call this the control paradox to some degree, uh, uh, in, in certain cases, like the more control of a system you gain, um, well, <laughs> there's some interesting things that happen. One, in, in a lot of circumstances, it's appropriate to say that you become bored, right? And so it's like we invite in a new layer of chaos as we, you know, as we start to get things figured out. Well, then almost immediately we get used to that as being the new standard, the new norm, and we immediately say, "Okay, what's next?" and like start playing the, ne- you know, we're, we always need to be interested, right? Um, and so if I think, uh, I think if you kind of extrapolate that on all the way to the metaphysical plane and recognize like, this is how reality, um, works fundamentally is through these like adaptive kind of processes. Um, then a lot of this stuff becomes much more agreeable and, uh, and, and just the whole idealist framing makes things click. Um, in in a huge way for me. So I think all that stuff is is really powerful to think about. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to have people up to speak if you guys want. I know Gabe was saying he's got to jump off pretty soon here. Um, But go ahead. Did you have any um, more comments you wanted to make on, like, your essay or or anything
2: Um, for us? Gabriel? The only other thing that I... Find interesting is I haven't read a lot of Stephen Wolfram stuff, but what he's putting out in his um, physics project is very similar to just kind of intuitive thoughts that I've been um, putting together. You know, he, he's talking about quantum physics, statistical statistical mechanics, and uh, theory of relativity, um, and thermodynamics all being manifestations of this one, uh, phenomenon, which is this, uh, irreducible, um, uh, complexity. And I've, you know, I've been, as I had mystical experiences, as I've read about other people's, um, mystical experiences, their non-human intelligence encounters, um, religious uh, experiences like in Mormonism. Um, and it's been interesting to look, to view consciousness and the, the reality that we experience or the, the physics that we experience as, you know, see if I can articulate this, but, basically on the same lines as statistical uh, mechanics, where um, you've got like a volume of gas molecules and there's an overall temperature, um, but each individual molecule could be at a a different temperature um, and you can have little pockets here and there of higher or lower temperatures. Um, And it's, you know, what my interpretation of what Wolfram's work is, um, is about... The basically that consciousness or the computational bounds of observers is what causes the laws of physics to manifest in the way that they are, Um, which makes sense that you experience a different type of reality when you are in higher states of consciousness. You see this, these synchronicities, this order in the universe, Um, your space and time are manifestations. Of consciousness, like if you think of it in a dream state, you're you're experiencing "quote unquote" matter. You're experiencing space um, and time, Um, but it's at this low fidelity level because this is just like one part of your avatar is just using up one part of your your dreaming mind. So you know, as you look at these, um, the way reality kind of bends and changes. According to the different states of consciousness, even like depression, you know, it really changes your reality. Um, and if you look at these mystical experiences, people that report um, being abducted by UFOs, or groups that are reporting these mystical, magical things happening, um, there's some correlation. You know, I think with both uh, this this idea of statistical statistical mechanics where you can have like an overall consciousness of a group of people, but you can also just have like one person that is experiencing like a different reality because they have very different computational bounds or like a group within it that are um, experiencing certain things. But then there's also this like averaging effect that the, the reality that you, you and another person experience, there's some intersubjective layer of reality, just like in the dream world, you know, Castro talks about, dissociative identity disorder and their alter egos experiencing the same dream um, but as different characters in the dream so so yeah I mean that's kind of stuff that I've been thinking of that's uh, I want to dive more into Wolfram's work Um, but there's some I think patterns in terms of physics and the reality we experience and the states of consciousness that we're in
1: yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for me, obviously, I, I think uh, Wolfram's uh, work, like his physics project and and everything related, to me, just directly bridges the gap between, um, you know, between idealism and uh, kind of more the more standard or classic uh, interpretations of of things like fundamental physics and such, um, which obviously is what uh, my paper was about. Um, but it's it's interesting because I don't think he's like I think he's kind of made that connection, but he hasn't really gone public yet with like talking about it. He hasn't come out and like said like Yeah, you know, I think idealism is the is the best framework." He's still just like, you know, "quote unquote" focused on the math. But it's like it's like it's right there, like the implications of are, are you know pretty clear to see if if you uh, care to look at things through the idealist lens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. Yeah, I, I just I just, say, I
2: just think his model is like really really powerful for for that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I respect that he's so focused on like the the computational side of things and not getting. Um, I don't even know if that is possible for him to get waylaid by like the spiritual side of things because he kind of admits that. He's not that familiar with these things, even philosophy. I guess his mom was a philosopher, and he kind of shied away from that. But it's interesting to listen to his uh, interview with Lex Friedman. And I'm like, oh, he's talking about, like, reincarnation. And he's talking about, like, mirror selves. And he's talking about all these spiritual concepts, but he's just talking about them in computational terms. um, Because, again, these are all just different different groups trying to describe the same ineffable thing with constructs, uh, you know, words, language.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, awesome. Thanks for coming on tonight, man. Uh, I assume you got a
2: run, is that correct? Yeah, I'm gonna take off. Um, Yeah, Tom, I don't know if you, so, mormons mystics and nuons i've got a substack and a podcast i think episode two you'd like because it's a very kind of analytic um kind of puts a whole package together of like here's a, a narrative to describe things not only mormonism but also like reality um, i think you might find that interesting
3: uh yeah i've heard about it but i never have uh dived in but i will can i, can I get one uh question for you dave before you go Sure. So you talked about language. I heard you mention language right at the end there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why. Maybe you can help me explain this. I don't know why. Well, I kind of do, but I'm sure there's a more scientific reason. I got really obsessed with language after I left the Mormon church. I think it was because Mormons use all these words and they mean different things for other Christians. And, um I' just I've, whatever drinking or having gummies, I'm thinking like wow I, I, i'm I'm using English, but like what language does God speak? Mm. And, like why did God create language and and then i I also claim citizenship in another country, so I'm like learning another language, and um i anyways i be, i I've become very obsessed with language, and some people have even said I've become kind of psychotic with language. And I'd I, I love your thoughts on, like, maybe why I am that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, one of our one of the podcast episodes, episode nine, I talk about this because it was after listening to Bill Real and Jacob Hansen argue about atheism versus theism, um, and I think Bill Real did a good job, um, but the whole time I'm listening to it, uh, it's just a pointless discussion to me because. It's, it's funny that people talk about God and they're using these three letters and they're assuming that everybody is referring to the same thing um, when it's just a made up word uh, that is supposed, you know, they're talking about something that's supposed to be ineffable um, and then you can argue if it exists or not and you think that there's only these two, you know, this dichotomy of uh, it existing or not. And so... So it is like part of this unlearning that you have to do is you have to realize that all of the words that we use and all of the thinking that we do um, is through this thing that we made up that doesn't have any inherent meaning. The only meaning that it has is in the meaning that two people have agreed on and that's not exactly the same thing. I mean I had you know when my youngest son, I was learning about human development, psychology, attachment, all this stuff, and I was thinking about you know how we constructify the the world and things from a baby's eyes and so you know we got an a pear out of the fridge and gave it to him and he goes apple and you know I, talked to my other son. I was like, you know, he's not really wrong. You know, he's, he's just using these constructs And to him round things that you eat are apples. Um, and we only think it's wrong because we've all agreed that it's something else. And so, um, I mean, this is a big, I mean, this is a key part that I don't think you can understand reality until you understand that, uh, language is just, uh, a myth and it's made up. And, And this is like a key part of, religious, uh, mythology is like this tower of Babel. You know, we were trying to get to God. Um, but the reason we couldn't get there is because all of our language was confounded. You know, that's an allegory that says, you know, the reason why science and religion and Eastern philosophy, um, they haven't converged yet is because they're all speaking a different language. So they can't build their tower to God. Um, and the same thing with this idea of this Adamic language, um, you know, Mormonism is kind of, you know, this was the thing that Joseph Smith was trying to, to get. And it's not just in Mormonism too, is that this 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 myth that there's this language that is so powerful, you know, the original language, I think in other um, religions that you can create through it. Um, so there is this, yeah, this obsession with like the, the true language. Um there's an, even an interesting video my brother sent me the other day about AI being, used to like translate animal language um, and they're not quite there yet but one of the interesting things that they found with AI is that you can take two different languages and the AI doesn't AI the model doesn't need to understand the languages but it can understand the relationships that words have like the geometric relationships that words have with other words and so they can take Um, two languages. I don't even think think they both need to be Latin based and they can see like, oh yeah, the word ice, you know, that's used often with cold, but it's not used often with dog. And they can translate one word from one language to one word in the other language because the geometric shape of both languages match up. Um, And I think that, again, kind of speaks towards this like Adamic language or that there's something, there's a deeper reality that's being manifest in, in, in our constructs of space-time language
1: yeah i'll just make a quick few comments and then we can go to don here um so one is like it's, it's important to recognize the necessity to really define terms like big ideas like god what what do you mean by that when you're going to talk about that um good, evil, like all these, all these words, really any word contains like a whole metaphysical worldview of context to like understand what it means. So it, you you know, I, it's, it's good work to define your terms when when you're talking about these high level concepts, Um, regardless of how repetitive that might be for you. um, It's not repetitive for whoever you're talking to um, because they're not going to be seeing it from quite the same angle. Another kind of interesting note is that from from the idealist lens, uh, if you know, if we assume everything exists within this one God mind and, and is kind of inherently imbued with meaning through that, and then we ask, well, why are there all these different seemingly conflicting languages? I think kind of w- we can sort of see that there isn't really a true language. Like, there's a reason for there to be this multiplicity, um, and and there's a reason for the kind of communication to be limited right and then another kind of interesting point that gabe touched on there is is about you know not really understanding the language but understanding the relations well i think in a sense that's really all relate uh, all that language is right it is it, it it is just an interpretation of the relationships between things um because you know kind of pulling in the interest net here and especially through the idealist lens it's like Really, it's it's everything is relations all the way down. There aren't even really things without the relationships that we understand them in, like that context of relationships, um, whether it's linguistic or or beyond that. Um, Okay, let's go ahead to Don here.
5: Yeah, I was going to jump in just just hearing this because it's funny. I'm a lot of spaces. I think I was in a couple with you, Fallen, where they're kind of. Rediscovering these word games, I think to bring up Wittgenstein and his arguments about the word games and his differences with ostentation of Augustine about the nuances of, of context and so forth. And he was, um, and there's another guy that I follow recently. Giorgiani, is also bringing up this idea of these AI systems, just these giant language modelers. And if you look at like children, they play with words and it's almost, sometimes you'll catch kids talking to themselves as if they're trying to, again, play these word games with one another, trying to figure out uh, how to identify something. And what what I think Gabriel was kind of talking about with his child, when he obviously is saying a word that he has some type of metaphorical understanding of what it is in his mind at that time, but he'll need somebody to interact with to help him gain a, possibly a better understanding of what the meaning of that word might be and better define it. So there's this idea of, the individual playing word games with himself, but then he, in order for it to have meaning, it has to be done interacting with others, which I think is what Wittgenstein was saying too. That, like these word games, this is has to be done in a um, social context, and then when you get the social context, then you start getting into some of the other sort of influences that may come about within that within that game. Um, but I, I do think one of the most interesting people that I stumbled upon early that kind of took me down these rabbit holes was was Julian Jaynes and the evolution of consciousness and the bicameral mind. And I thought he does one of the best jobs at trying to find a, a science behind what uh, Gabriel is describing. Um, and I, I think he was he's also describing that language allowed, and in many ways, if you think of of, of some of the ancient mythology of Prometheus about stealing the the fire from the gods. um, One could argue, like the techne is is language, because language allows for the invention. It it, basically creates a sort of almost this organ of perception that is um, would not exist. It almost like it it, it creates this organ um, that allows us to start looking at the the mind space that doesn't exist within the, I would say again, this is again, get into words, but material world, um, it allows us to sort of create this, uh, this alter, e- this, uh uh, 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 ego. It, it's it allows us to create um, abstraction, allows us to basically create scenarios, um, that may not exist within their current reality. And so it, it, it takes us to, uh, this idea of of creating possibilities and then allowing us to interact. that doesn't exist within the material world.
2: Yeah, I think there's, um, I mean, at language, I think you have to have this two pronged approach where you ultimately recognize that it's meaningless and you know, the ineffable experience is what you're after and you have to like deconstruct and like stop thinking in language. And then at the same time, it's also important to um, try to describe it as much as you can in language.
5: Well, Gabe, how about I um, ask you a question then? If Would you say that the this mind space or whatever, the ineffable, is that a structure? Is that order or disorder? Are we tapping into something... That is inherently ordered, or is it inherently disordered?
2: I think it's, I, mean, I think it's both, um, and that's why it's hard. I mean, I think the the correct approach is like the the, the two sides of the paradox. Um, so yeah, it's hard to hard to say. I think it's the same it's kind of a similar way I view ego and uh, like ego development theory where, you know, it's ultimately the ego that discovers you know, that makes meaning and ultimately discovers that it is an illusion. So there's this paradoxical nature of things where you have to pursue both ends.
5: Cause I've, I've heard one theory, which I thought was interesting is that it's essentially inherently ordered and that this God Essentially, he's created us in order to explore novelty because he's so bored. And so, therefore, when we try to tap into the order, the orderliness of things, which is kind of brings us back to this state where we get to play with these ordered structures that we don't that uh, we get to put new we get to basically overlay new patterns onto the ordered structures is order structures almost at a very low latent state of energy that don't require a lot of energy to sustain them And what with us, I think it, go ahead.
2: I think it goes back kind of to sort of like this entropy topic. I was watching a video about entropy where they were saying you know if you take milk and coffee you know this is a highly ordered state because they're sep- separate um, uh, and so but then you mix them together and they go through this chaos. And then they get to this state where they're um in some ways you could view it highly ordered because now they're very evenly mixed. And so I think that's kind of this two ends of the spectrum from the Big Bang where there's this, you know, singularity of everything in one point and the other end, which is this um manifestation
5: because I, you know, I always find I always all these finite forms. I always find history. history this guy Tanner who does this uh, you know collapse of civilizations. And what he talks about is sort of this idea of um, the Santa Fe Institute also kind of explores these concepts of order, you know, the origins of order and chaos theory. And it seems to me like you can construct these ordered, these, these ascents, you can create emergent behaviors even through just uh, language, so to speak. And you can create these structures that are appear to be ordered up to a point where the energy to sustain the order becomes too great and collapses back into its more simpler forms which again are, are more of the, these these things that are sort of inherent or these platonic forms that almost are uh, well, resting yeah. states, so to speak.
1: So, yeah, exactly. So to tie this like back, a couple of these ideas back to kind of idealism um, on, on a more general level, uh, I mean, we're talking about language and stuff here. I think through the idealist lens um, – we can, you know, if we, if we assume, you know, everything exists within a form of mind, essentially, then we can also talk about life as being a conversation, essentially. Like there's always these concepts, you know, regardless of how linguistic they, they are, um, that are kind of playing with each other and relating with each other. Um, And so on like, on a personal level, there's a couple implications from that. One is that, um you're always having a conversation even if you're alone right you these thoughts are going through your head but it it makes very intuitive the need to connect with other people right because a conversation with yourself just perpetually gets to a point where it's like kind of meaningless right and so I, I think I think that perspective makes it really intuitive that we do need to be interacting with each other Um And, and and that's not like a trivial thing at all. That's not something that can really be replaced because I'm like, I'm literally suggesting that it's more correct to imagine other people as being as literally being another part of this God mind that you literally need to interact with, um, for, for your sanity, for one, (laughs) um, but it does very much like play into all these sort of language games that we're talking about. Uh, go ahead,
5: Don. And I just, well, I wanted to follow up because I guess what I was interested in with the language and say creates this sort of new organ perception that allows us to create abstraction and and maybe move into things that sort of distance ourselves from the, the connection to the mind. It's this universal say being, um, you end up, like I said, with and I people have used a card and and in some of this and say Newtonian, that you end up with a, an atlas that can cast a net over the world in which we currently interact with, that actually is inversely proportional to our connection to that initial state, which is ineffable. So if you can imagine this ineffable state, and then we create this this per- organ of perception that that creates this rational mind that allows us to create an atlas of the world, it ends up, unfortunately, proportional, taking us away from that ineffable. And I I think sometimes maybe that takes us in a direction um, in which we can distort the feedback loops of the systems that we create through the rational mind that take a lot of energy to sustain it because it's not connected to the ineffable. And those complex systems end up collapsing back to something that's more connected to the ineffable. And so maybe we have cycles of civilization that that continue on. Like we we get to that point where we think we become gods, where we have complete control of everything and it's completely ordered and it has to collapse back to this ineffable uh, property of being.
1: Yeah, I mean, all this gets back to kind of like the balance between order and chaos, which is to me directly um, related to like what Gabriel's uh, paper was about talking about entropy kind of reinterpreting entropy, um, through the idealist lens. You know, if, if we think of reality as existing within a form of mind, then we can kind of understand the balance of order and chaos in a very like Taoist sense of like literally just being an eternal truth, like an inherent property of this God consciousness, you might say. And so when you frame it that way, like a lot of these things make a lot more sense and we can gain like a deep intuition for um, kind of the universality of the adaptive nature of consciousness as individuals, but also like in this greater sense.
5: And I, and I find it fascinating because I do think it almost seems to be somewhat of an awakening in cycle psychically. I, you know, you could talk about these, un, you know, collective unconscious. It, I can see the verbs in the language changing. You hear words like holistic, Starting to emerge, you see, like regenerative, like within the farming community. I'm, I'm a regenerative farmer, um, but it's you, you hear these words, holistic, regenerative. It's almost as if we're getting back to sort of that that uh, that whatever you want to call it, that primordial ineffable understanding, the intuition. Like I think Berkson talks about it, the artist that the artist had sort of this con- intuition connection to something um, that couldn't be described in words, and they use art as the form to to express it. And I, I just I'm seeing in a lot of the spaces sort of this zeitgeist of, of people trying to tap into this sort of psychic, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, awakening. Um, and I find it fascinating because I, I bet you if you were to do the metadata, I bet you you're starting to see a lot of this, these words um, starting to, starting to uh, accelerate, so to speak. And then as to what it forms, it'll be interesting to see what's on the other side of this.
1: Yeah,
0: for sure. Off,
5: but- I mean, okay.
1: Yeah, go yeah,
2: ahead. Thanks for
5: having me. Um, last thing, just before Gabriel leaves, because it's funny. I'm working with this Persian PhD, and he's talking about health, and it's the same thing. He's talking about homeostasis, and I think it's somewhat of the same. I could I could say it's the same metaphor if you look at the way that medicines evolved, is that especially even agriculture as well. As you you start to use science, and science reaches a point where it actually uh, distorts the feedback loops of which the natural world is saying that uh, it's, it's, it's unknowable and control was too complex. And it has to reach, it has to return to a a more of a balance with within nature. Like nature is almost connected to that ineffable source, so to speak. And then once you try to control nature, you're trying to control the ineffable and eventually it, it collapses like any other complex system that's based on rationality.
2: It's all death and rebirth and surrender. I we'll figured out.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, you're welcome to come. You know, do another space with me anytime. So just let me know if you want to. Um,
2: yeah, this is fun. But yeah, thanks for inviting me on right. my first. All right. Have a good night, guys.
5: Thanks, Gabe. Night, man.
1: But yeah, so um, we were talking about. Uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to bring up how this stuff kind of connects to the idea of historical cycles, right? Because a lot of people uh, in kind of in our circles talk a lot about this, right? Talk a lot about kind of predicting what's coming next. Like, we're, it seems like we're in some sort of a collapse right now. Um, and I think thinking of things in terms of historical cycles suddenly makes much more sense with this framing um, kind of when we're looking at the balance between order and chaos and, and you might even like use the pendulum swinging metaphor, right? Like when it goes too far one way, you know, it's kind of building up momentum in the other, in the other direction. Right. And so I think it's, I think it's powerful to do that. But one thing may be interesting is that the more that we predict um what's coming next maybe the more we kind of undermine that right it's like there's sort of a meta game being played where the better our models get the more and this gets back to the entropy idea like the better our models get at predicting things the more entropy and the more like new things seem to appear uh right so i think it's interesting to be wary of that like the The more sure we are that collapse is coming, sort of the more we're opening the possibility space to a new type of thing happening, I think.
5: Well, this, Father, you might find I was in, so it's funny, I was in a space with General Flynn, and he was talking about AI's influence on culture. Then I jumped into another space, it was with Alejandro. And again, they were talking about culture versus politics, and you know, and I, I was trying to say to, to Alejandro is that you know if there was one person I'm again because everything gets politically, but said that, that essentially politics is downstream from culture. So if you believe in this this sort of um, power struggle, be say good and evil, so to speak, that has existed, that those who understand this idea that power that um, culture is down, that politics is downstream culture, you would go upstream to control the culture. And what I find fascinating, say, with the AI systems and what you've seen, say, the collusion between government and, say, some of this tech, is that they have the ability to control culture. And you've seen it happen, say, in the educational system. I think there's a big backlash in the school systems right now in which they're trying to, say, ideologically subvert some of the things that we hold, say, true to the uh, United States of America and what we believe in with with, uh, with liberty, that there are these forces that somehow uh, manifest themselves over time and that we have a problem of recognizing those, those, um, those influences. And so therefore, I, I probably would argue that you, these cycles exist, but maybe what happens is by us not recognizing these forces, um, that they end up becoming amplified. And that if we're able to recognize them, and I would say they say young do the shadow work that we might be able to mute those cycles and make them less, say, um, the the waves less uh, powerful, so to speak. And uh, the trajectory that humanity, you know, rides on, you know, maybe tilts a little bit more towards um, one that benefits everyone. But as long as we never recognize it, maybe the waves just are, they could become so distorted, so to speak, that they exist. It's just, they would be less violent, so to speak. Well, I think
1: it's interesting to think about what the effects of AI are going to have, because so far they've been really centralizing in some ways, but it's also having this really obvious power to democratize information, right? Like, you know, search engines were centralizing, right? But they were also democratizing information. AI is doing that on a whole new level, and if we get to a point where we each can individually have, you know, an AI assistant on our phone that that runs like one of these full models, um, then that will actually be a re uh, like a right. decentralization again, and we we can get to a point where we break through the centralization, the centralizing aspect of it, and get into a space where. Um, maybe and, and this gets to a lot of like what these guys have been talking about like with what's the next art medium I think in a sense it might be basically personalized conversational AI that democratize information and my hope is that we can like there will be the inevitability of truth and like being honest about what the evidence is telling us pointing people through and out of materialistic framings uh and nihilistic framings and towards these more like idealistic framings and understanding a lot of the things we've been talking
5: about and i and i uh, looks I, like Steven. i'm sorry i just want to say i i agree with you the problem that i find and i i go back to the gulag archipelago Sol nichin's insight is that you know what? What? What would have prevented the atrocities of so many millions of people being, you know, killed? And I think he said it was the, the fear of God. And I, I I hear that time and again when you look at these these, um, you know, human devastations uh, that we that we've seen throughout our history of, of of violence and and devastation. And and I my issue is that I see people um, not recognizing our capacity for evil, and therefore. Uh, aren't willing to fight for this idea of liberty uh, and the fact that we say that we just will give up you know, more and more of our rights over to these sort of centralized authorities. And AI at this point, I would argue, is probably in the hands of people. And again, pe- most people would say, well, it's not that big of a threat. But when you feel like Ivar Harari saying that humans are hackable animals – Um, You start you you should people should take notice from a statement like that from someone who's high up in these political spheres who may be using that to think that, you know, we're in fact we're useless eaters and therefore we'll go back to the way civilization's been run uh, most of the time, which is actually we've leaned over to some type of totalitarian regime. And in fact, uh, we we don't have the the, sort of the uh, understanding that we're living, you know, to 250 years of an experiment of self-rule and so with not without that understanding i'm more fearful because i think if you're an average american i i don't i think they've forgotten what this american revolution was about which is an experiment in self rule
1: yeah it's interesting go ahead stephen
6: hey thanks um you guys were talking about uh entropy and connecting that with notions of like cycles in in human history I guess what I was thinking about as you guys were talking about that was uh, uh, like if you look at the human body like or an individual um like for example like what we're made out of are like solids liquids and gases and if you if you put solids liquids and gases in a soup and then shake the bowl it tends towards... Uh, high entropy, um, but when you, you know, when you arrange our parts, you know, to make us the way we are now, like we're a low entropy system, like we're, um, and, I, and there's a tension between our parts, like the stuff that composes us is tending towards and high entropy, um, but the way we maintain our existence is by, you know, uh, wrangling it and, and, and uh, persisting in this low entropy state, and so there's a tension between uh, there's sort of i don't know I don't know how much of this is a metaphor uh but there's a tension between the stuff that we're made out of and um our functional whole and our you know our goals as individuals and I wonder if this metaphor could extend to um these more political or societal cycles that you guys were allu- <clears throat> were alluding to, or maybe like individuals um left on their own would tend towards some kind of chaotic state but then there's a cost to imposing order um on that right um in the same way that there's a in order to impose uh the way that our you know the way that our bodies impose order on our on our parts you know there's there's trade-offs like we die we have to be reborn again right it's not a perfect system and there's trade-offs so i wonder if that's i wonder if there's a trade-off between a tendency towards entropy of the parts and a tendency to impose order from on high for some higher goal, and I wonder if there's just intrinsic trade-offs there that result in cycles. I don't know if that was a ramble, if or if that made sense. That was kind of where I was going.
1: No, yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, through through like the idealist framing, these sorts of things uh, really become intuitive. I think we can see that these patterns exist uh, universally uh, at all scales and in all complex systems. Um, so these sort of patterns of, of balancing order and chaos, um, various cycles you, you might um, be paying attention to, these sorts of things seem to be really universal. So you can see how these patterns, these like fundamental properties of consciousness, I would call them exist in, um, you know, political systems, the nature of power that all runs by the same thing um, the inner workings of our organs and all these things. And then also, I think when we get to understanding models of physical systems, one of the really important things that the idealist lens kind of makes very clear is recognizing the limits of our understanding of these systems. Um, so like we can see, very clear evidence for buffering mechanisms and various types of cycles and such um but there's a lot of scenarios where we're tempted to kind of
6: not see those or 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 put them to the side but i think oh real quick when when you say idealism are you referring to like everything is consciousness like at a substrate Or, or do you mean like uh there is a you know natural order but our minds impose a hallucination on top of it (laughs) the
1: the the way i think of it um i mean there's a couple ways of putting it one is basically that like it's the idea that the transcendent lives through us as us right another way of putting it would be like our individual conscious minds are all parts of a greater like god mind you might say and so in a sense that god mind is like dissociated into the multiplicity that we are and such that it can have a multiplicity of individualized perspectives and egos and stories and all this thing, all these things, and then um, play this kind of game of generating and experiencing reality uh, through us as us um, in this complex, like multidimensional sort of space. Um,
6: So basically, I'm I'm tracking. I just I was just curious because people use it in different ways. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, for
5: sure. Okay, go ahead, Zon. No, I was I was, uh, I was I was I was thinking about again your your definition there of of uh, of idealism. Is that it's almost very similar to Heraclitus when you argue.
1: Um. I am not that familiar with Heraclitus so I cannot verify or deny that but I will say um, I, I mean I can tell you like where I where like where I got those ideas from
5: yeah no I I, I, I was gonna kind of tack onto these cycles because it's you know it's funny is I, I also studies economists and so forth just to again understand where you know how they look at human nature, because a lot of the economists, again, are, they're studying human behavior, and a lot of the modern ones are have obviously moved into to, to psychology to explain, you know, our choices and the way that the economies are constructed. But, uh, you know, so I, I follow one economist, and believe it or not, he, he looks at cycles, he even looks at the solar cycles and so forth to sort of look at the rise and falls of civilization just based on these solar cycles. But he also talks... He also, in his, in his uh, projections, looks at these, at these um, also cycles that were talked about by these mystics, which were, say we're entering the age of Aquarius and moving out of the age of Pisces. And, I, and uh, people like Jung also kind of looked at these as well. There just seemed to be a recognition of something changing in the, um, in the psychic makeup of humanity that uh, shifts. You know, and I think a lot of them would basically, they, they, what they did is they, they, they um, tagged it to the stars and the celestial movements. So th- that these changes in, in these uh, the psychic behavior of civilizations was sort of aligned with the uh, movement of the stars, which I find fascinating. Um, so there, again, it, when, you, when you go down that path, um, there seems to be also these influences that are sort of represent this complex dynamic system of which there are so many variables that it is very difficult to, to sometimes know the path or, or what that, that we take uh, because there's, there's so many things that are involved. So it's, there's novelty in the, in the way that the civilization emerges uh, based on so many different things. Um, it rhymes, but it, it may not match it entirely, which I, which I find funny, but there are things that match and therefore have some level of pro- predictability with them that we're able to use to sort of help us maneuver through the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to kind of look at that, like, you know, I mean, you're kind of going maybe a little bit of a, a, an astrology direction there, but I think like for me, um, seeing that all the science is actually pointing us all the scientific evidence is actually pointing us to idealism and not materialism has kind of just pulled away this whole veil of the modern like mainstream narrative and made me much more open minded to these sorts of things that are kind of considered woo standardly um so i think it, you know it's it's pretty clear what's what's going on here which is that there are patterns that Like, there is plenty of evidence for using these patterns as predictive, but have not been integrated into the mainstream narrative. And why is that? Well, it's all a power game. It's about the nature of power. It's about the fact that, um, you know, those in power are want things to remain how they are. And, you know, Questions aside about how they got there and why, why, you know, we have this very materialistic, nihilistic, uh, framing. That is the default kind of setting that aside. Just the fact that that is the case right now means that the default is going to be the powers that be want to maintain that status quo, right? They, they want homeostasis as long as possible. So they're going to resist inviting in, um, regardless of the evidence, they're going to resist inviting in any models that might pick that apart, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, let's hear from Overlook.
7: Oh, hi there. I just wanted to, um, first of all, say, what a great little space. Um, it's, uh, it's refreshing. Um, I think, actually, um, Don Man was uh, wanting to follow up one of his points. Can I let him go first and then I'll I'll come in? I actually wanted to refer back to something that was said earlier.
5: Yeah, no, I, I would just follow it up. I, it was
7: to follow up what you said, Fallen,
5: is like uh, someone that I follow against uh, an economist who talks about these cycles that exist between public and private confidence, And he actually, um, he basically uses a 120-year cycle and what I find fascinating, a lot of things that he's discussing um, that we're seeing today, I, I would argue we're seeing a sovereign debt crisis or, again, these centralized structures, which, again, are represented by the, those of the people that elect these people, which, again, is in the case of the United States. We elect our politicians. But the politicians essentially have become um, it, corrupted by the power of which the government represents, which the founding fathers tried to, to basically Reduce its power in the way that it was constructed, but they understood that over time due to special interests that the corruption may reach a point where this the, the power, you know, corrupts. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think, like I said, they, they studied history, recognizing that these these cycles exist. And, uh, you know, I find it fascinating now because I think we're in one of those times where you're starting to see the centralized power structure. And in this case, the debt, the sovereign debt cycles, are reaching a point where they no longer can be sustained. The idea of again this idea of entropy, that the the order that was created through these debt in order to sustain sort of the systems of uh, of pensions and and, uh, and social obligations are they're no longer able to be uh, to be able to uh, be sustained. So therefore they have to compl- they have to collapse back to something simpler, and unfortunately. When it collapses during these cycles, it collapses completely. And we'll go back to a very much decentralized system, but perhaps we'll actually strengthen the, uh, the, under, the underpinnings of, of our, of our uh, republic, which is the, uh, the preservation of liberty. And with new structures, like you're saying, say, based on, uh, you know, blockchain technology now that may be able to enhance uh, and protect liberty going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll just add one note there, which is just like some of the things you're saying there connect to to my point again. And if we are to ask, you know, if, if these uh, historical cycles are so apparent, if you read history, well, then why does it seem like um, basically the the powers that be are trying to just do away with that and pretend none of that exists? Well, I and think, none of that's true. I think and I- act you know, kind of free themselves from, from any of, of those constraints or any of that understanding, uh, I mean, it's pretty clear to see why they would, right? The power wants to hold
5: on to that power. I, I agree. And I think, like you're saying, they're, they're trying to... So if they see this, if they see the wave is, is going down, the sine wave, and we're heading down, then that what they're going to do is try to create a structure to capture that decentralized wave. And what they are going to do is try to replace it with something called, say, Marxism or socialism, the World Economic Forum. And in that case, the debt, what they're going to do is they're going to try to create the fear in which people ascend will give up their liberty for a sense of security in the fact that they will own nothing. And during this decentralization, this debt collapse, they're trying to create a solution. But what they're going to have to do is have us forget the foundation of our country, which is based on liberty. So they're going to try to ideologically subvert the kids, which would basically be the people that would be electing officials and and the younger generation into being convinced that socialism and Marxism is the way out of this mess. And that is a much better form of say our, you know, constitutional uh, Republic based on capitalism. And so that's what we're in a battle for. And one is much closer, I would argue, to say your idealistic form. One is able to be sustained, and the other one will collapse into something completely you know, destructive and uh, take us into like a very dark age. Yeah, for sure.
1: All right, let's go over to Overlook.
7: Uh, thanks, yeah. Just um, some basic assumptions. Um, so the assumption is that it's possible to configure Societies in in some sort of predictive way. I I mean, and of course, you know, government, government policy, and economic theory, and so on, does exactly that. Um, Is is that the basic um, kind of intent here? And and if it is, I guess the the second question would be: Is survival enough, or is something like um, some sort of optimised society that one would want to live in? You know, if one had choice, you know, between possible, you know, um, I guess societies. Is, is that the idea is so, you know, uh, c- can, can it all be configured? And if so, is survival enough? Or do we want more, whoever we are? <laughs> Basically. I,
5: I, maybe I was, I was going with this as a fact that I think, I think it's been messy. I, I think if you look at the uh, historical record, most of our time has actually lived in sort of a, 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 a schizophrenic state of one of which we probably really have not truly understood uh, what free will might be. And we've lived under some type of totalitarian regime. Um, and so, like I said, I, I think it's hard for people, even myself, sometimes to recognize what the United States represented, and probably ancient Athens as well, probably the you know, truest form of democracy, is, is an experiment in self-government. Uh, Because that's not the way that society's been arranged for most of humanity. And I could see a lot of people, once they've reached power, and they look around the world, and they probably see some of the destruction that's going on, say, in the environment, or some really bad choices people have made, that they might see that most people are incapable of making good decisions. So therefore, they may look at people and say, well, they're incapable of making decisions, so therefore, we will create the structure in which they should live. And maybe some people should not be uh, should not live, and but those who do probably need to be make sure that they understand their role, in uh, in which that they're uh, in which the society that that they are going to structure exists. Of which one that those that they select um, who are able to uh, remain in their structure may not have exactly what would be considered free choice.
1: Well. So, okay, I have a couple thoughts here. I think, um, yeah, uh, what, what you were getting at overlooked to me connects back to kind of the balance between uh, order and chaos um, in some pretty deep ways. So I think it's important to recognize that the more control, the more like you might think of it as idealistic or like idyllic or u- utopian, um, kind of the structure of a society is, you're, you inevitably invite new kinds of chaos, whether that's through something as seemingly trivial as boredom or, or whatever it might be. There, we ha- like All the evidence basically tells us that there's this inherent property of reality or, or, or of consciousness, if you want to think of it in a, a, like through the lens of idealism, um, that there kind of are these internal buffering mechanisms, and there is this adaptive nature to consciousness, to reality, such that um, basically control is a paradox. It's paradoxical. The more control you have, the more control you need, and then the more you're focused on your limits of your control, which which are always imperfect, uh, all these sorts of things. One more thing I want to note on this, and it's highly related is just in general, the concept of utopianism, which has sounded to me that you were sort of hinting at um, this whole concept of utopianism is very dubious and that's clear from the perspective of idealism um, because basically, well, I mean, this is my definition anyway, like the, the idea of, of a utopia is, or the idea of utopianism is the assumption that we should, reduce or eliminate all suffering and all potential for suffering. Um, The problem with that is that you would have to assume suffering is meaningless for that to be a good thing. Um, And I think all of the evidence we have suggests that's very much the opposite of what's true. Um, So through the idealistic lens or uh, the lens of idealism, um, it's very intuitive to just assume that. There's inherent meaningness to everything. There's like an inherent uh, validity and necessity to all the messiness and and all the suffering. Um, And there's a direct line from suffering to meaning realization in overcoming the suffering, right? So it's a paradoxical thing where we need suffering to overcome it (laughs) because that's how those are the meaningful things, right? I think if if you look back at your life and ask, you know, what are the most meaningful things? it's time and time again, this sort of pattern we see. And if we assume that suffering is inherently meaningless and want to just do away with it, well, that is the definition of nihilism, right? If suffering is meaningless, then basically that opens the door to to thinking of everything as being meaningless. Um, But what we were talking about when you brought that up was just looking at the historical cycles and and kind of doing an analysis of where we're at, why it seems we're like in this collapse, this time of collapse where things are trending towards communism, and just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together there.
7: Yeah. understood. No, thank thank you very much. That, that's that's been very helpful. You've summed up a lot. So um, survival is um, perhaps a better guide than utopian ideal utopian idealism utopian ideals which tend to be used um as a kind of a uh, uh what was it called when you you bite and switch kind of situation yeah there
1: i would say it's a it's a dubious control mechanism right and that's exactly what they're doing with this whole communist push is they're trying to maintain control with all these utopian narratives and every means they can go ahead
5: don yeah, I was going to say it's funny, too. It's like we just never seem to – we seem to forget the people that study these questions from Kondratiev. Um, Kondratiev was a Russian uh, scientist who was who was contracted by Stalin to go study the you know, the Western capitalist system, and, and he was to report back why it was inferior to communism. He reported back why it was actually superior, but there were actually cycles that existed within it, this creative destruction cycle. And he was executed for his findings, by the way, by Stalin. But von Mises came up with the same thing when, when he studied it um, as well, because they were like, well, how the hell are the Russians um, pricing anything? Because they didn't have a capitalist system. and the capitalist system, again, you have these, uh, an intelligence system, essentially, without being intelligent, because you've essentially had these agents acting on their own behalf that are coordinating the activities in which to um, you know, distribute resources. Uh, so the Russians were actually going into the Western markets to price the uh, the products within their own system. Um, so there was even the, the Russians knew that their system was inherently flawed, and you know von Bees was the first one to to show the the the, uh, the paradox of the system that they were creating that it was relying on the capitalist system, which was predicated on this idea of of free choice in in your consumers, uh, in your consumerism, um, which is why I think the capitalism while in imp- the capitalist system in essence is just an agnostic system it's the participants that are the you know the agents and they have morality but the capitalism itself is not moral immoral it's just a it's just a system and so what happens is like i said the educational system tries to anthropomorphize capitalism in a way that to say that it's inherently evil and you're watching it now where i think you're seeing even like uh you know, the, the climate change alarmists, and they've been trying to, again, direct our energy and so forth. They've given up even on, on this idea of ESG, and now they're, they're moving towards something called inclusive capitalism. Um, so they continue to try to change the, the language uh, to try to, again, subvert the systems that actually are, are, uh, are necessary for, to, to preserve free, free choice, which is free will, which is liberty, which is what repre- which is represented the United States of America's culture.
1: Yeah, well said. Um, I noticed Stephen has it, his hand up a while ago. Um, otherwise, happy to kind of go any direction with this conversation from here.
6: Oh, the conversation kind of went where I was was aiming anyway. So I'm happy. You, you mentioned um, actually in one of your comments, you said conscious, consciousness is, um, I forget the exact phrase you use, either like self-reflective or like iterative or um, adaptive. Uh, adaptive. Yeah. what Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess my question is, what's, what's it adapting to?
1: Yeah. So basically what I'm kind of pointing at with that uh, statement is that. There's an adaptive nature to consciousness, um, on multiple levels and multiple dimensions. And also through the idealist lens, um, reality itself is a form of consciousness. And so like these adaptive properties apply, uh, universally, not, not just, uh, to like specific forms of brains or, or, or something like that, um, so, like one example, kind of the 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 one we perhaps have the most clear scientific data on would be um, hedonic adaptation. Um, are you familiar with that concept at all?
6: No, no, I'm not. Um, okay,
1: so so hedonic adaptation is basically just the concept that um, you your uh, your pleasure from a particular uh, activity it it adapts to your expectations of it right so if you um like this is why children get spoiled for example right if 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 you give a child a piece of candy uh after school every single day for a month um you know the first few days maybe they're like oh yay this is so great whatever by the end of the month they're just like yeah give me the candy and then if you stop giving them the candy, they're like, they they throw a tantrum, right? They're freaking out because they've adapted to expecting that. So it turns out. So like whether whether I'm
6: pleased with what I got for Christmas that has everything to do with my expectations for what I was going to get.
1: Exactly. So so our expectation, it, like it's all relative, right? They've fallen. Um, so like, well, yeah.
5: Just interject one second. One second. This this is where I would probably say that's not conscious and, and I and I don't want to I don't, wanna, I don't I hate to I don't want to be here too much but I, I think some things you could well I, I view consciousness as something that evolved from language and I say that it created that organ of perception that allowed for sort of creating this uh, ability for abstraction to do self-reflection some of the things like I said like I would argue with hedonistic or things that you could argue exist with the nature much like a Pavlodian uh, response, where you can teach a child, like I said, based on his, you know, giving a little candy for doing some type of trick, they would continue to do that. Or a dog. Language uh, is, is, in my mind, is sort of the, the precursor to to, uh, to consciousness, and would not exist without it. And so, therefore, it, it's a there's you you can drive a car without being conscious because um, you you don't know that your foot's on the pedal, you don't even know what's ever happening all around you. But you're driving the car. Um, so I think one of the problems is trying to define this word, which again, I don't think everybody's had very difficult difficulty trying to describe it, but that that's where I would probably draw a distinction that the things wh- where you're talking about i would I would not describe as as being conscious.
6: Well, actually that, that was, was more in the spirit of oh sorry. sorry. no, go ahead. Well, that that was more in the spirit of like where my question was coming from when you say consciousness is adaptive because adaptation is a strange trait to put on something you claim to be fundamental. What I mean by that is uh, if you want to say consciousness is fundamental, but then you say it adapts, well, is it adapting to itself or is it adapting to something else like an environment? But if it's an environment, then wouldn't that be fundamental too? So I think that's I think the the direction Don was going was kind of um, in the spirit of where my question was coming from.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are great questions. So um, to the question of the definition of consciousness, I'm very much using it in the broadest possible sense. Um, Basically, you were making a distinction between like conscious and subconscious sort of stuff. Um, But, you know, I'm talking about it. Can you please mute for a second, Don? sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm talking about it in the very broadest sense where, you know, if reality itself exists within a form of consciousness, um, then, then I'm literally saying like, this applies to everything in all forms. It, it, and I'm not distinguishing between different layer, uh, different like levels of consciousness, so to speak. But then to get to Stephen's question, and to tie those together as well, um i would just post to you kind of the thought experiment of when you dream and you have a dream tonight and you experience like a space that you're in did you only were you only able to have that dream because of the environment of the dream i mean i i would say like even from the most materialist uh m- most materialistic conceivable viewpoint uh, you would say, no, the whole dream space, the whole dream reality uh, was generated within my mind, within my consciousness uh, on some level. So again, we can like um, talk past each other about conscious versus, versus some subconscious, whatever. I'm, I'm using it in the most broad conceivable sense. Um, and, and I do think it's worth kind of drawing the metaphor of the physical reality as we experiencing it as basically being a different type of dream in a different type of mind and a different type of consciousness um, than the dream you'll experience when you go to bed uh, tonight. And by the way, there's there's a really powerful, uh, there's some really powerful neuroscience on this um, from studying people with multiple personality disorder um this is exactly what happens is you can interview them the next day and they'll recount uh you can talk to their different you know personalities one by one uh the next day and they'll recount the same shared environment um but they will each each perspective will have uh specific details that are unique to that perspective and the other perspectives don't know about it right So we already have an existence proof um, from the materialist framing with the example of people with multiple personality disorder that um, basically different distinct um, forms of consciousness can exist within one mind, like one literally physical brain, um, and, and they have a shared seemingly physical reality. And so basically what that tells us is that you can, exp- if you want to extrapolate that to um, kind of reality as a whole and, and view things as if you and I and everyone else are all pieces of this same mind and we're just dissociated uh, perspectives within one single mind, then the physical reality as we experience it is basically just a consensus between those different perspectives um, and it's kind of just a baseline trivial consensus Um, so that's basically what the idealist framing does is instead of having the hard problem of consciousness, which is just completely unassailable and then having, you know, material reality exist and then just trying trying to like vaguely assume that consciousness is some sort of emergent property from that. We flip it, say consciousness is fundamental, and then it's utterly trivial to explain how uh, the material reality
5: comes out of that. Yeah, I, and I, you know, it's interesting you brought up the multiple multiple personality disorder because I actually um, studied that a little bit. The only reason I studied that because I went off on a, on a tangent when I was, was studying MKUltra just for a little bit. And um, what, what you found out there, again, I think from the powers that be, they were looking, again, as how to control people. So ironically, again, I, I would <laughs> I would argue probably that I would use multiple personality disorders, not something that would generate something akin to a conscious being, but more like a mechanism for the mind of that person in order to cope with the violence enacted upon it, in which it allows it to actually be able to uh, uh, psychologically continue on so a lot of times the trauma that that uh, is, is done to kids early on they end up developing these personalities i don't know if that that's an interesting question whether or not they're truly conscious or whether they're sort of like a uh like a schizophrenic being so to speak um um because, again, I, I find those people that have multiple personality disorders probably are not that uh, – may be less likely to make – want to make decisions, which in my mind is representative of a conscious being an agent of, of, of that enacts, enacts an agency. Um, but uh, to take it further, I was, I was going to follow up with the idea of where I find interesting is where this vir- virtual world is going because – I think you have essentially like you're talking about this sort of animalistic condition that we had that, uh, you know, we maneuver in the world that without language based on sort of hardwired conditioning that based more on Darwinian principles, so to speak, of which some type of, uh, stress is, uh, enacted upon us. We, we have a re- reaction that may be considered, uh, new and it actually gives us a fitness payoff. And then it, over time, it it's it's uh into it basically gets taken into our DNA and ends up becoming part of the new species, so to speak. So we have this evolutionary adaptive process that happens at a very instinctual level, and then we have something that emerges through language that represents sort of this mental aspect, this this sort of psychic nature of our being that is laid upon sort of this sort of adapted Darwinian um, process that's more attuned to sort of the natural environment feedback loop. Because what I would argue is like what you're able to do with the, the, the mental world created through consciousness is create a world in which you can distort the feedback loops that would be actually more pure at the, at the sort of that more primitive state that may be tied back to sort of that, that universal mind aspect. Because you can, and that's where I think you have this idea of this mass psychosis that sometimes you could argue we're going through now, where people could present ideologies that are not uh, that that would not would not survive in sort of the real, say the real world, whatever you want to call that, because the feedback loop would say that it, it, it it's it's, it, it, it's it's not tenable. It's it's not tied to the ineffable. It's not tied to the universal. But because of language and manipulation of the ideology, you can distort the feedback loop to, to convince them that it is the right direction and uh, therefore create behavior that's not that is not what, what tied back to, say, that that universal. And it goes off until the point which it collapses. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I usually frame like that stuff in terms of just the nature of power. Um, and I mean, power dynamics are readily understood, like regardless of your framing, um, you know, materialistic or, or idealistic or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, I think kind of the, the deep truth to recognize there and kind of the adaptive nature, uh, of what's going on there is is that power is corrupting like it just literally if you're not abusing power then then like you kind of don't have real power that's sort of like what power is is it opens up options that are not optimal um in kind of a grand sense and then There's this there's this tension between, you know, what's optimal or what's for the greater good versus like what's just easiest or most convenient for whoever's actually like holding that power. Um, Yeah. So, I mean,
5: well, let me let me put this way. Have you ever heard the the book Anti-Fragile by by Taleb? uh, Yeah, I've been very exposed to the ideas. And I just the only reason I find it, I, I kind of like this idea of when he reaches his epiphany for the book came when he was in new york city during a blackout and he went to go get a drink of water from the faucet and of course it was an infrared sensor and what he did it, it came it, his epiphany was like the complexity of of society and the technology in which way it was applied had reached a level of efficiency that was actually had made it actually less less uh had made it less uh made it more fragile so the efficiency of the paradox was that the efficiency being driven by technology it actually led to susceptibility of of a a major collapse and sort of the idea again even with this this with what's happening in society that the the, in, in the agricultural system i would argue the same thing happened with the use of pesticides and the idea that we can control all of these different uh you know pathogens you end up Creating a system that's based on this level of control, at which the control reaches a, a level of efficiency and hyper-efficiency, at that it ends up can't—it's not sustainable because it's it's at that peak of uh, of that homeostasis point, so to speak—and it has to collapse back to something more simple that's more uh, in tune with balance. Um, so I find it funny with this anti-fragile. I kind of always apply it to our agricultural systems, to our health systems, and probably even to our mental systems, if you look at, rather than people saying, maybe you shouldn't be tuned in all day to social media, that you should meditate, or, or, or and what's meditating do, It's it tries to connect you to the here and now, and it gets you out of that mind space of always thinking about somebody, how they think about you, or what you should be doing, and so forth. So it's almost all these systems are bre- reaching this kind of hyperactivity um, that leads to a sense of, of of collapse back to its more homeostasis point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point to bring up, like the monoculture and how, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, it gives it, it, it is the, a manifestation of the control paradox where Like we're controlling things to a degree that we have all these benefits of efficiency and such. But it's also like a single point of failure in a lot of ways where if there were some sort of blight or something like, you know, if we're if it's all monoculture shit, then that could just completely wipe out our entire food source, um, you know, with just one genetic uh bioweapon essentially and it could totally happen accidentally as well and it's so like the the more you kind of it's kind of the tower of babel in a sense like the more you build this control structure the more inevitable it's its collapse becomes so um you know i think a lot of like what we're what we're doing in in the circles that a, a lot of, i mean a few of us are in is like talking about how you know, to make more resilient kind of communities ground up and w- with versatility and diversity and such, um, such that we can be as resilient as possible to the, the coming kind of collapse in whatever form it takes.
5: Yeah, that's and I, and I, I said it's it's fascinating because I said I being a, we, we have I have a farm uh, and probably about three years ago we started to look at regenerative farming and I had no idea about what any of this was. But everybody around us, when you talk to the other farmers, you realize it's impossible them to convert to organic, uh, to not use pesticides, because the cost structure is such that makes it almost impossible. And yet, the more I read about glyphosate and its effects on the, on the human gut and it, and the immune system, um, would show that it's we're probably doing more harm than good at this point. We have cheap food but at the expense of having more nutritious food, um, maybe less of it, and we're depleting the soil. So you're sort of, uh, it's almost as if we're doing it to ourselves based on this idea of of cheap and hyper-efficient system. Yeah,
1: 100%. That's awesome that you have a farm. That's really cool, man. That's interesting. I have a few family members who have like small things going on, but what kind of scale is your farm? Like, is that your main job? Like you, um, no, you know, grow and sell?
5: No, main, main job is uh, is manufacturing. But uh, so it, it's like, it's, uh, we probably have 30 acres, but um, it's, it's it's basically been an experiment. And, um, and it's more also just from the whole pandemic, just re- like looking at uh, my workforce, you know, you start to realize... Uh, how and we're self-insured so you start looking at like what what is the health of my employees what are they eating you know and and then you start going down that path and you start looking well all of the all of the science has ignored like the health you know the, the gut biome right and then you go down that path and you look well what's affecting the gut biome it's pesticides like well how much is pesticide use gone and then you see the exponential growth of, of glyphosate and, and then you just it's it's like no one is ever sort of challenging these paradigms and then it's who controls, like we're talking about just now, who controls those narratives. And then you find out again, it's, it would be the, uh, the power structures um, and the ones that have the money. And so they control the narratives and therefore they control the, the output of, uh, that's presented to us. So it's uh, it's, how do you, how do you get out of that is, you know, create spaces like this where you, yeah, people are sort of questioning the the matrix, so to speak, and 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 understand that there are people trying to at least break out of it a little bit and offer some solutions. But you know, it's it's it you, you really can't make money at it uh, like you would at some of these big time farmers. So it's more of an experiment on my part to see if you know you truly we can truly rebuild the soils and and it, and it is making a difference in the nutrients in, in the
7: vegetables.
1: Well, you know, to the degree that our system is capitalist or will be in the future, what you know, what whatever whatever however things play out, um, you know, the more people learn to like learn about all the issues you just brought up and um the the more that this trend continues of people like recognizing how important, you know, gut biome is just health in general, just like what you eat is <laughs> like just how poisonous like so much of uh, what's considered like normal food, uh, at least in America is, has become all these things. Like the more the value for good real food is going to go up. So I think, you know, I think we, we could see a pretty big transition, especially if, you know, major systems are collapsing. Like we're going to get our priorities realigned real quick. um, You know, if shit starts hitting the fan.
5: Well, I think, I think you're saying that's what's interesting is, is uh you're seeing the vocabulary change and it'd be interesting if and I and I, I follow some some guy as well who who studies the metadata and um, you know he basically says I, he said that there, there's he follows a Polish um, it was a Polish linguist who would rate the emotional content of words and what he does is he actually uh, studies the metadata and then rates it based on this Polish linguistics um, Um, system so what he's saying is that over time he can he can find trends in which the words start to build an emotional intelligence an emotional um, power uh, and then eventually that power reaches uh, a certain point where it actually manifests into action which which I would think would be an unbelievable predictive tool um, especially if someone's again has powers of like the entertainment world or the news media or if they want to influence a policy, that they would control the entertainers, they would control the schools, they would control everything, so that they could essentially control that language around a certain policy. And then over time, through the emotional content and the narratives around it, that they could then therefore do the same thing, build it up to a certain point where it would spill out into action. In this case, maybe in, in action of policies and so forth and people being willing to give up you know, whatever it is. Uh, for those policies to be uh, put in place. Why Polish? I, I don't know. I I, I think it's I, it was a Polish linguist. I have to I, I'll have to find his name.
1: Yeah, well, I mean it's interesting to look at, um, and I think like one of the one of the great things about the idealist frame is that you just sort of recognize the inherent meaningfulness of of the struggle and of of all the suffering associated with like you know all all of the kind of negative or bad aspects of what of what we're talking about and you also recognize the inevitability of like the cycle and kind of the natural death and rebirth that is happening and will continue to happen and so you know in a lot of the ways it's a white pill although on the other hand it's also like well we'll probably not ever fundamentally escape a state of suffering and struggle but that's like kind of a good thing Um, (laughs) but anyway um, I'm gonna have to call it a night pretty soon here because it is past midnight for me um, but yeah, it's been nice chatting with y'all. I'll definitely, um, continue to be doing space, similar sorts of spaces. So hope to see y'all around. Uh, many of you I have seen before. Hello, Indigo. <laughs> um, yeah. So good night, everyone. Um, any closing remarks are welcome.
5: Nope. Thanks, Paul.
7: Awesome space. Thanks for having me.
5: Good night, everybody.